If you like listening to my conversations with interesting people, you'll love listening to them or watching them on Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get access to these interviews early and ad-free, as well as bonus episodes from my YouTube channel and exclusive series you can't find anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and help promote content that matters. Hey everyone, welcome to the Answers with Joe podcast. I'm Joe and today I'm going to share with you a couple of different videos I'm combining into one podcast because they do kind of go along the same lines. It's the video on Bitcoin that I released in about mid-December and then the blockchain video that followed that that helped to explain, you know, how Bitcoin works a little bit better the week after that. I'm putting these two together because, you know, they do kind of complement each other. And, um, you know, one video is kind of short for a podcast. So why not put them together and give you a more complete picture of the whole thing? These were my last two videos of 2017. This is my last podcast of 2017, clearly. And uh, so tomorrow is actually December 31st. January 1st is on Monday. I've got a video coming out then, and um, 2018 is starting. So without any further ado, I'm not going to go on. I'm just going to share these uh, videos with you. These are obviously videos that are being converted over to audio format, so there might be a few things that I talk about that you can't see in the audio version, but people tend to like the audio version, so I'm doing this anyway. So thanks for listening, and here are the Bitcoin and blockchain videos. But first... Yes, I know, I'm going to talk about Cankerboy again. Actually, there's been over a thousand people who have tried Cankerboy, so why don't I let one of them talk about it this time? Hey, my name is Leslie, and I was a lifelong sufferer of canker sores until cankerboy.com came along. If I don't have a little one in there, I've got a couple of small ones, or I've got a bouquet of them, and I'm in terrible pain. But once the caplets came and I um, bit a huge chunk out of my cheek, which would have resulted in a huge hole, me being in pain, a swollen face, the whole thing. But happily, nothing happened. I don't think any of this is a coincidence. Because like I said, I'm usually a person who has a canker sore, if not three or whatever, and I've had none in a month and a half. Would I recommend this product? Not only would I recommend it, it's the only thing, and I dare to say it's even like a cure. I get comments in my video about this all the time asking if it actually works. Well, there's your answer, and it might work for you, and if it doesn't, you'll get your money back. I just want people to try it, because I know how it feels like to have nothing work, and you feel like you're stuck with this curse that never goes away. I know how hopeless that feels, and I want to help people out with that. So spread the word. That's cankerboy.com, C-A-N-K-E-R-B-O-Y.com. Now here's today's episode. We live in a time of unprecedented change, a time when even our most massive and untouchable institutions and ideas are vulnerable to disruption on a massive scale. Case in point, here in Dallas, just last week, the last video rental store shut down. It was called Premiere Video, and it was the place where like the real film geeks went. They had the obscure, weird art films that you couldn't find anywhere else. Even back when there was a blockbuster on every corner, this was where you went if you were really into movies. And that boutique quality to it is what kept it viable even after Blockbuster went out of business in 2010. Believe it or not, there are 10 Blockbuster locations that are still in existence, most of them in Alaska. Compare that to the 9,000 Blockbuster locations that were around at their peak, which, believe it or not, was in 2005. Now companies come and go, that's just the nature of business, but what if it's the entire economic system that's outdated and vulnerable? I've talked in recent videos about the challenges our economy is going to face in the coming years with automation and AI, machine learning and stuff like that, as well as some ideas to counter this problem like the resource-based economy. But there are some people that want to drop out of the monetary system altogether. 
with totally new currencies that are faster, easier to manage, more secure, and less open to manipulation. They're called cryptocurrencies, and if you're not familiar with them, you will be. Very soon. Corbin D, Dan San, Filtron 3000, Pertz, Tamanga Chatterjee, Bill Nichols, Gator157842, and many more requested a video on Bitcoin. So yeah, the topic of Bitcoin and blockchain technology has been one of the most requested topics over the last year. And I've put it off over and over and over again, because it's not a subject I'm all that well versed in, but it's clearly a topic that's very popular and a lot of people are very passionate about. So I wanted to try to get it right. So as 2017 draws to a close, I'm wrapping things up with two videos on this subject. Today's video on Bitcoin, and next week I'm talking about blockchain. Just for you. Merry Christmas. Now, all that being said, I did my best to get all the facts right, but I know for a fact that many of you out there have been following this topic for many years and are far more knowledgeable about the subject than I am, and I encourage you to talk down in the comments and have a conversation about this. Please, share with the class. All right, to understand Bitcoin, you have to cast your minds back a little bit, about 10 years to September 29th, 2008. The stock market suffered its worst loss in history, dropping 777 points in one day and far more in the weeks that followed. Billions of dollars in value disappear practically overnight, and the Great Recession begins. While not the only culprit, most of the fingers pointed at the major banking institutions like Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs for putting countless amounts of money out there in the form of subprime mortgages and then selling them as credit default swaps in a labyrinthine scheme that eventually crumbled all around them, taking the rest of the U.S. economy with it. This was perceived as only the latest in a series of booms and busts, usually perpetrated by a billionaire elites that get off scot-free with golden parachutes. And it was in the middle of this environment of just frustration and anger that literally a month later in October of 2008, a white paper was published on a cryptography mailing list by a mysterious person going by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto. He proposed a decentralized online currency, not controlled by any banks and managed by an online distributed ledger called the blockchain. Some of these ideas had been around a while. Uh, there was a group called the Cypherpunks back in the 1990s that were creating a lot of ideas that he pulled from to put all this together. And if you want to learn more about the sort of proto-currencies that were the inspiration for Bitcoin, you should check out a documentary on Netflix called Banking on Bitcoin. I'll put the link down below. Anyway, the mood was ripe for this kind of thing, and it attracted a slew of online developers who got together and made this a reality, creating the first Bitcoin in January of 2009. But created based on what? That's the question most people have when they talk about Bitcoin, because a currency has to be supported by something, right? Well, not really. For context, let's go back way, way back in time and see how currencies first developed and how they've evolved to get to where we are today. And this is a very high-level overview. If you want a much more deep dive into this, the channel Extra Credits has a six-part series that I'm linking to right here. It's definitely worth checking out. In the earliest days, people traded for goods and services. If you were a fisherman and somebody else made bread, then you could trade your fish for their bread. And all were happy. The problem is this relied on what economists call a coincidence of wants. In other words, you need bread and the bread guy happens to need fish, so it works out. But what if you need bread, but the bread guy's all good on fish? Well, then you've got to find some third item of value that the bread guy does need. So say he needs a tool, then you've got to go find a tool maker, exchange a fish for a tool, and then exchange that tool for some bread. You can see how this gets complicated real fast. What you need is a standardized third item of value, something that you both agree on that's available and easy to exchange. That's currency. Now, anything can be currency. We usually think of things like 
coins made out of gold or some other precious metal. This is handy because it has an agreed upon value, but really, it can be anything that has a limited supply. For example, salt was used as currency back in Roman times and in East Africa. In fact, that's where the word salary comes from, the Latin salarium, which means salt money. Both China and India used cowrie shells as currency for thousands of years. In fact, it may be the longest running currency in history. The people on the island of Yap in Micronesia actually used giant circular stones called rye stones that were too heavy to transport, but they had a set value and everybody knew which one belonged to who. Then there's the obvious examples of cigarettes and contraband used in prison. Now gold coins and shells and cigarettes are fine for little microtransactions between people, but if you're a giant company or a government and you've got to transport thousands or millions of these things around, it starts to become a problem. Not only are they heavy and difficult to transport, there's also the fact that people tend to, you know, rob you and stuff. It's not secure is the point. So the goldsmiths that created the coins in the first place began to offer to store the currency in their vaults so that they were safe and secure, and then offered promissory notes to people that they could then take back and redeem for their coins later on. These goldsmiths became the first banks and their promissory notes became the first paper money. Actually, the first paper money was developed in China around the 1100s, but that was more of a government-backed thing. These private bank notes started to pop up in Europe around the 1400s. Flash forward about 100 years and banks began to realize they didn't have to keep all the currency on hand at all times. They could loan out pieces of it while just keeping a fraction of it in their reserves. This became known as fractional reserve banking. And from an economic perspective, this is huge. It put all that money out into the economy instead of being locked up in the bank and spurred a lot of economic prosperity. And that was fine as long as people didn't panic and make a run on the bank. Luckily, panic isn't something people are known for or anything. Now with all the different banks offering up all kinds of different bank notes, it gets pretty confusing pretty fast, which leads to the creation of central banks that control the monetary policy and governments around the world. Which gets us pretty much to where you need to know for us to understand Bitcoin, but one last little historical fact. After World War II, the economies of Europe were so devastated that they had to tie their currencies to the American dollar because the American dollar was still on the gold standard, meaning it was backed by gold reserves. The problem is that the economy can't expand without creating new gold. And in the late 60s, the other countries began redeeming their currency for US gold. And with the war in Vietnam and other pressures mounting, eventually Richard Nixon had no choice to take the United States off the gold standard, which means that our currency and all currency around the world for that matter is backed by, well, nothing really. And this is called fiat currency. That's what we have today. Again, check out the playlist from Extra Credits. It's linked down in the description below. It's actually really fascinating. All of that is to say that currency at its most fundamental is just a way of keeping track of values. And that's basically what Bitcoin is. It's a ledger that keeps track of values. And the difference behind Bitcoin is it's a distributed ledger, which means it's available to everybody and there's no central entity controlling it. It might help to think of Bitcoin as kind of like the Napster of money. See, the big thing about Napster was instead of having to pay a central entity like a record company, you could just share things on a peer-to-peer -peer network that was logged in the Napster software that was available for everyone to see. And it's the same thing with Bitcoin. The songs are the units of currency, and the Napster software that keeps track of all the songs is the distributed ledger that keeps track of all the values. And this way people can exchange currencies peer-to-peer -peer without having to go through a bank that controls all the money and takes a little piece off the top in the form of fees. Now obviously units of currency and MP3s are totally different things and require different levels of security and sophistication, especially when you're dealing with millions and even billions of dollars worth of the stuff. So the trick is to create an accurate online ledger that's available to everyone, impossible to be hacked, and anonymous. And here's how they do that. First, the accuracy part. How do you keep an accurate ledger when there's no centralized entity maintaining that ledger? Well, you share it amongst the people. You crowdsource it. Anybody who wants to can use their computers that run programs to keep and maintain the ledger. And since it's spread out amongst everybody, instead of being able to hack, say, the server at a bank, you would have to 
hack millions of computers in order to mess with it. That's the security part. And as for the anonymity part, each person's identity is protected by high-level encryption, hence the term cryptocurrency. Now, instead of going down that rabbit hole here, if you want to know how the whole encryption thing works, I'll put a video up here that explains it. The ledger's updated every 10 minutes, so every 10 minutes, a block is created that contains all the transactions in that 10 minutes, and it's added to the ledger. Each of these blocks contains a code at the beginning and the end that connects it to the previous block like links in a chain, hence the term blockchain. Now, this is a very simple explanation of blockchain. I'll get more in depth on that one next week. Now through this blockchain, you can go through and find every single transaction that's ever been made on a Bitcoin in sequential order. And that's synced with the ledgers on computers all around the world. So if there's anything wrong in your ledger, it's instantly repaired. But with all these encryptions and transactions to process, what incentive is there for people to use their computers to do this? Here's the clever bit. Every time a block is created, a set number of Bitcoins goes to the person who created that block. This is called a block reward. And these Bitcoins are brand new Bitcoins. In fact, this is the only way Bitcoins get made. And since it's kind of like digging gold out of the ground, the people who do this are called miners. So if you ever hear the term Bitcoin miners, that's what they're talking about. People all around the world using specialized computers, solving these problems and putting this together in a race every 10 minutes to get a piece of the Bitcoin block reward that goes out to the people that solve it. And the number of Bitcoins goes down by half every 210,000 blocks, which comes out to about four years. The first 210,000 block rewards were 50 Bitcoins, that became 25 in 2012, and then 12.5 in 2016, which is where we are right now. It'll go down to 6.25 in 2021, and eventually the system is designed to stop creating new Bitcoins in 2024 after 21 million Bitcoins have been created. This is necessary because you can't just keep making Bitcoins forever. The only way it maintains its value is by creating scarcity. As for what will be the incentive for miners once they stop creating Bitcoin, I think by that point there's supposed to be a fee system in place that'll take care of that, but I could be wrong about that. Now all of that explains how currencies work and how Bitcoin works as a currency, but what's taken up all the headlines right now is the fact that Bitcoin has exploded in value over the last few months. At the time of this recording, Bitcoin has reached $16,000 per Bitcoin, which is three times what it was just a couple of months ago. This means a few things. One is that a ton of money is being invested into mining operations because these block rewards are now worth thousands upon thousands of dollars. And the problem with that is that huge companies are now building mining factories that are crowding out the traditional Bitcoin enthusiasts and entrepreneurs, which leads to a bit of centralization of power, which is what Bitcoin was made to prevent. The other problem is that as the value increases, it brings more and more people into the fold and more transactions means more processing power to register those transactions. And in some places, the amount of electricity that's required to do this computing actually offsets the amount of money they're making from the Bitcoin. And that energy consumption is staggering. Right now, the Bitcoin network uses 31 terawatt hours of power a year. That's more than 150 different countries around the world. And in fact, Venezuela had power shortages recently because of rogue mining operations in that country. And at its current rate of growth by July of 2019, the Bitcoin network is gonna use more electricity than the entire United States. This is gonna quickly become a problem. And as the value increases, more traditional banking institutions are gonna start getting on board with this. In fact, Goldman Sachs, who many blame for the crash of 2008, just announced that they're gonna start selling Bitcoin futures. This is obviously not what the original Bitcoin enthusiasts had in mind. There's also the problem of utility. Up until this point, Bitcoin has mostly been used to buy things online, especially anonymously and most notoriously on the famed Silk Road. 
but using it in the real world has been a challenge. Now there are some companies springing up like 10X that give you the ability to tie your Bitcoin wallet to a credit card so you can pay for things with Bitcoins in the real world, but these are still in the early stages. So for the most part right now, Bitcoin is being used as an investment. An investment in a currency that's rising, evolving, adapting, and growing every day. I seriously can't overstress how much everything I'm saying could be completely obsolete by the time you see this. So this video is already running pretty long and there's a lot more to talk about, like things like Bitcoin mining, how to get into Bitcoin mining, new ways of doing it like cloud mining and pool mining. Haven't really gotten into how you get started with Bitcoin, the various exchanges out there, crypto wallets and that kind of thing. And then there's all the other cryptocurrencies out there like Ethereum, Litecoin, Ripple, and Dash and all the differences and advantages between those. I also haven't talked on the endless third-party applications, blockchain layers, side chains, and next level functionality that are springing up around this. And then there's the mystery around who the hell is Satoshi Nakamoto? Nobody knows. And it's an important one to solve because he actually owns 5% of Bitcoins. That's over a million Bitcoins. And at today's current market value, that's $16 billion worth of Bitcoins. And by the way, there have been rumors out there that he's actually Elon Musk because of course there are. If I tried to cover all that, this video would stretch until February. So what I'm gonna do is just put a whole bunch of links down in the description below. You guys can talk about this in the comments. And what I really want this to be is just a conversation starter. If you're big on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, please share your knowledge in the comments down below. And if you're a noob to all this, then listen around and see what you can pick up. But I'm gonna wrap this up with a couple of thoughts. Now, I've been aware of Bitcoin for a few years now, but I didn't really follow it. I wouldn't say that my understanding extended any further than just awareness. You know, I knew it was a thing. Go me. But as I read up on this, I really found my head swimming. I was just absolutely floored by how far this thing had progressed, how many, how many people had worked on innovations and then people who had innovated on top of those innovations and so on and so on. I started to feel like somebody from the Middle Ages that had been transported to today's world. And the first thing that I was shown was like a steam locomotive. And I'm just marveled by this piece of machinery. And about the time that I'm finally getting my head around this, this crazy machine, somebody explains to me what cars are and planes and space probes that have traveled outside of our solar system. And I don't even know what that is. And I'm not the most uninformed person in the world. I actually run a YouTube channel talking about futurism and technology and stuff like that. You know, I'm not necessarily an early adopter, but I'm far from living in a cave. And it just really struck me how fast technology is evolving right now. So much so that even people who generally keep up with this kind of stuff can get totally left behind. But ultimately, for Bitcoin to become a widely used and mass adopted currency, it's gonna have to get to a point where it's as easy to use and intuitive to spend as just opening an account at a bank. And I think they'll get there. You know, technologies like this, especially ones that create entirely new markets like this one does, they tend to have a long incubation period where it's just the wild west for a while. And there's a bunch of different competing ideas and platforms and ideologies that have to get worked out and problems solved until there's only a few left. And that's when the mass market tends to jump on board. I think cryptocurrencies are where cell phones were back in like the early 90s, you know, still trying to find their feet, still struggling for acceptance, and able to transform the world in ways that most of us can't even possibly imagine right now. Now, I've been asked a million different times from different people if there's a way to donate to my channel through Bitcoin, and I never had anything like that set up, but in the process of researching this and looking into it, I found something. I have a link down in the description below. If you want to throw some my way, have at it. 
Big thanks to Brilliant.org for supporting this video, and a big special thanks to the Answer Files on Patreon who help support this channel and keep the lights on around here. I want to give a special shout out to the newest people who joined the tribe. We got Tobias Belts, Felipe Longo, Florian Marcher, Jim Hurt, Fuki Barlog, Tobias Gebauer, lots of Tobias is here, Kelly Hawk, George Hoffman Jr., Alex Schafferhans, Boris, Simon Vertanen, and uh, Roberto Laura. So I think did a pretty good job on that one. All right. Uh, if you would like to join them and get access to some secret perks that are available only for Patreon supporters, you can go to patreon.com slash answers with Joe. Like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, I invite you to check out some of my other videos, probably on the side over here if you're on YouTube. Uh, I talk about topics like this all the time and uh, maybe subscribe and you'll be able to see my videos when they come out every Monday. All right. Thanks so much, you guys, for watching. Come back next week where I will cover blockchain in more detail. In the meantime, you have an eye-opening week and I will see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care. I'm old. Kind of goes without saying that the internet has changed the world, but I actually grew up in a time when there wasn't an internet. I know a lot of my audience has never known such a time and has no idea what this sound means. For those who don't know, that means that nobody can use the phone for a while because I need to watch some dancing hamsters. Sorry, Mom. But as ancient as that seems, the origin of the internet actually goes back decades before that. Because before there were dancing hamsters, before there were message boards, before there was Netscape, before it was peanut butter jelly time, there was distributed adaptive message block switching. Remember that one? <laughs> Good times. This was back in the 60s. The Cold War was in full swing, and the U.S. military wanted a way for all their bases to communicate with each other in case of a nuclear attack. This eventually led to the development of the ARPANET, which many of us have heard of, but this was after years upon years of research by uber nerds around the world in programs like the French Cyclades project to figure out how to get computers to communicate with each other. This involved figuring out packet switching, datagram switching, virtual circuits, and a whole word salad of technical jargon that eventually got standardized into the TCP IP protocol that came about in the late 70s, early 80s. This technology then dripped down into the civilian population, leading to local area networks and eventually wide area networks. By the early 90s, the internet was a thing that was actually accessible to all, but still only embraced by the early adopters, which led to new segments like this. There it is, <laughs> violence at NBC, GE, com. I mean... Well, what Allison should know. What, what do you is say internet anyway? How does one, what do you write to it, like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate with, I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? Now we laugh at this today because we know now how world-changing the internet would turn out to be. But that internet confusion from 1994 is happening again today with a new technology. It's called blockchain. A technology that some people think is going to change the world in ways that are going to make the internet look like a cute little fad. So this is the second in a two-part series on cryptocurrencies and the blockchain, the first of which where I focus on Bitcoin, you can check out right here. So there's a reason why I started out this video talking about the minute details and breakthroughs we had to work on over decades to get to the internet where we are now. Because truthfully for most people, including myself, if you were to, to try to explain exactly how the internet works at its fundamental levels, it would put you to sleep. It'd be the most boring thing in the world. But that's not how we experience the internet. All those intricacies of data package transfer protocols are what make the internet possible, but what made the internet change the world was when it became accessible to non-technical people. And that's the problem with talking about blockchain right now, is because that's all it is. Just a mind-numbing word salad of technical jargon that sounds more like a droid language from Star Wars. But the lesson from the internet is that the way we are going to experience blockchain has very little to do with all the technical details that make it possible. 
and that it's gonna take a lot of time and research to get it there. So in this video, I'll explain how it works, but I'm only gonna go like 10% down that rabbit hole for all the reasons I just explained, but also the fact that, well, I barely know what I'm talking about. I mean, you might as well ask me to explain quantum physics to you or something like that. <laughs> oh, I have? Oh. They do know I'm an idiot, right? Hang on, let me check my comments real quick. <laughs> oh yeah, they know. So I covered some of the basics in my Bitcoin video, so I'm just gonna take a minute to explain how it works right now. The blockchain is a distributed ledger. Think of a financial ledger like a bank statement, except instead of the bank tracking all the transactions, that job is handled by all the people on the network. Every time the ledger is updated, it's synced up amongst all the computers on that network, which are also called nodes. So any inaccuracies in one node are quickly fixed by comparing it to all the other nodes. If you use Evernote and sync it up amongst all your computers and devices, it's the same idea, except amongst thousands of computers. In a blockchain, there's a set amount of time, in the case of Bitcoins, every 10 minutes, that all the transactions are bundled together in what's called a block. And each of these 10 minute blocks are attached to the previous blocks through an encrypted key called a hash. This forms a chain of blocks. Blockchain. Wait. If you're brand new to blockchain, something that might be confusing you, it's something that definitely confused me early on, is that it's always referred to as the blockchain, which makes me think it's like the internet, like one big thing. But that's not what it is. It's, it's more of a template that everybody uses in different ways. So there's a Bitcoin blockchain, an Ethereum blockchain, a Litecoin blockchain, and so on and so on. So if that's where your head was, put your head somewhere else. Really the difference between the different blockchains and cryptocurrencies is how they incentivize people on the network to keep up the ledger. As I explained in last week's video on Bitcoin, they offer Bitcoins to people who donate their computers to handle these transactions and create these blocks. These people are called Bitcoin miners. And this is the basic idea. Different blockchains have different size blocks, different incentives, different structures, but you basically come down to, there's the ledger, which is the blockchain. There's the nodes, which are the people who host this on their computers and the miners, which you know process the transactions. Did I do it? I did it! Alright! Alright! High five! High five! There's nobody here. Now being that this technology is basically a ledger, and a ledger is a record of transactions, it translates really easily into financial applications, like currencies and exchanges and banking. Actually, I heard Bitcoin being called the killer app for blockchain in the same way that email was the killer app for the internet. In other words, it was the first obvious application of the technology that most people could understand and use. Wait, are you telling me they get it instantly and I don't have to write it out by hand and lick an envelope and pay for a stamp and I get to hear this? You've got mail. Just as email was the tip of the iceberg for what the internet can do, Bitcoin is the tip of the iceberg for what blockchain can do. Because blockchains are just a record of transactions and when you break it down, really anything can be a transaction. A thumbs up on Facebook, that's a transaction. A transaction is just an exchange of values. So some people are taking this cryptocurrency paradigm and applying it to other things. For example, one of the many cryptocurrencies out there is called Steam, and it's a currency based around interactions on social media. The idea is that Facebook, Instagram, all the other social media platforms, you are the product that they are selling to advertisers. And the people who are creating the content, the users that are creating the content on those platforms, don't get to see any of that money. Well, Steemit, the social media platform based on the Steam blockchain, creates Steam dollars based off of social media interactions like posts, comments, and upvotes. Much like Reddit, what you see is determined by how many upvotes the content gets instead of by an algorithm. And just like Bitcoins are given out whenever a block is created, Steam dollars are distributed and handed out according to the amount of activity on the site. And just like any other cryptocurrency, Steam dollars can be exchanged for real dollars. And so far, $30 million has been given out to content creators on their site. And there are Steam-based clones of Instagram, Twitter, SoundCloud, and yes, even YouTube. But getting away from cryptocurrencies altogether, there's a lot of companies out there that rely on ledgers and 
directories that could be completely transformed by blockchain technology. Like logistics and shipping companies, supply chains, identity, land rights and grants, uh, insurance, manufacturing, so on and so on. All these industries are examining ways that blockchain can streamline and automate their businesses. And yeah, I said automate because the next evolution of blockchain is called smart contracts. Again, keeping it simple, smart contracts are sort of an if this then that formula that automatically generates transactions based on situational triggers. Say you're running a warehouse and you gotta make sure that your supply of widgets stays above 500, then you can have a smart contract in the blockchain of your business where when it starts to get close to that number, it automatically places a transaction with the manufacturer and fulfills that order. And this gets really crazy when you get into the internet of things. Smart homes that can automatically order milk when you're running out of milk or pay your bills for you or adjust the energy expenditure to make sure that your bills stay in check and so on and so forth. All of this is pretty simple stuff, but here comes the part that's either terrifying or wonderful depending on your perspective. According to Bettina Warburg of Animal Ventures, the real power of blockchain and smart contracts is in the automation of entire businesses. If you take an org chart of a company, you can use that reductive if this then that approach and break down each one of the jobs into individual decisions that can then be automated through a nexus of smart contracts. And this is known as a decentralized autonomous corporation. Now we don't need to get into exactly how it works because for one thing, they're still trying to work that out. And for the other thing, as I've been saying throughout this whole video, how it works is not nearly as important as how it will affect us. And if you think that the effect it's gonna have is to accelerate the already alarming trend of automation taking over jobs that used to be done by human beings, well, if it works, yeah. But the flip side of that is that you can make a 10-person company perform with the productivity of a 100-person company. Meaning small startups could be 10 times more disruptive to industries than they used to be. And this could lead to innovations on a scale and pace that we can't even imagine right now. So if you're the entrepreneurial type and you've got a good idea, then this could be the best thing that ever happened to you. Now we're not there yet. These are just possibilities at the moment. And yeah, it sounds kind of crazy, but let's be honest, back when you heard this and this, you've got mail. you would have thought it'd be absolutely crazy that you'd be able to watch this video on your phone while sitting on the toilet. Yeah, I know you're doing it. So the full promise of blockchain is still a ways off, but the technology is advancing at a rapid pace. In fact, one of the biggest advancements in blockchain is something that's not really blockchain at all. It's called Tangle. Oh, blockchain's already obsolete? Awesome, hang on just a second. One of the biggest problems of blockchain is that the more people who are on the network and the more transactions that are going through at any given time, the slower it works and the more energy is expended. There's a bit of a scalability issue with blockchain is what it comes down to. In fact, you might call it a road block. Tangle is designed to fix this issue by instead of certifying transactions in one huge block, every time a transaction goes on the network, you're required to certify the two transactions that came before it. The idea is that the more people who are on the network and making transactions at any given time, the faster it actually goes. So it's not only scalable, it works better the more people are on it. There's a cryptocurrency called IOTA that's currently on a tangent architecture. Also worth mentioning is a decentralized internet platform called Substratum. By letting the network use your computer to pass website information to other computers on this decentralized network, you can earn substrate, which is a type of cryptocurrency. Not only is it a way to make some income, a decentralized internet creates more access for people in places like Russia and China that don't have access to the full internet like the rest of us do. And thanks to the FCC, you can probably add the US to that list soon. 
In fact, one side of cryptocurrencies and blockchain that I didn't talk about in the last video, but probably should have, is the fact that it's helping out people in developing countries whose national currencies have become hyperinflated or have collapsed by some means. Having access to a worldwide currency that they can use literally lets them have a bank in their pocket and it opens up opportunities that they didn't have before. Don Tapscott, a blockchain researcher, called blockchain the internet of value. And Jeff Wilkie, the founder of Ethereum, said that blockchain is what the internet was supposed to be. It's hard to argue the potential of this technology to transform our way of life in ways that we can't even imagine right now. Whether it will reach this potential and what kind of things we're gonna discover along the way, we have no way of knowing. But it's definitely something worth keeping an eye on and staying in front of if possible. Godspeed. Thanks to Brilliant for supporting this video and a special thanks to the Answer Files on Patreon who help support this channel over the long haul. And I wanna give a special thanks out to some of the new people that have joined. We got DJ Brown, Jay Theory, Robert Holton, Ian Porter Phillips, Paschal Enos, Ilya Rolovic, uh, Raphael Pranke, <laughs> Eliyahu Ben Asher, and Michael Gibson II. Thank you guys so much for joining. If you would like to join them and get access to my secret vlog and outtakes and all kinds of other little perks, you can go to patreon.com slash Also, t-shirts are available just like this one. They're fun, they're sciencey, they're witty, they make great gifts. You can go to answerswithjoe.com slash shirts. All right, thank you guys so much for watching. If this is your first time here and you're not familiar with my work, you can check out my other videos. There's one right here that Google thinks that you'll like, and there's others over here on the side if you're on YouTube. Uh, and if you enjoy them, please do subscribe because I come back with videos just like this every Monday. All right, thanks so much for watching. You guys go out, have an eye-opening week, and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys, take care. Hey, thanks for listening to the Answers with Joe podcast. If you found this through the YouTube channel and you are not subscribed, on iTunes or Google Play, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to be coming back with interviews and repeats of old videos just like this all the time. And if you found this on the podcast player, then uh, know I have a YouTube channel on, uh, well, on YouTube. Just do a little search for Answers with Joe and you'll find all kinds of fun science and comedy stuff to keep you entertained and thinking about cool stuff for the rest of the week. And you can find this in all my podcasts and all my videos at AnswersWithJoe.com. And if you enjoyed it, a nice review in the iTunes or Google Play Store goes a long way. And of course, word of mouth means everything. So any, anything you can do to help get the word out, I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. I will catch you next time. Have a good one.